afternoon from the Calix Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Gross. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up in today's program, we'll be joined by Dr. Matthew Feller and Ms. Miriam Horn discussing low-energy research. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Today is a very special guest, Dr. Matthew Feller, who's involved with low carbon emissions projects. Uh, Dr. Feller, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm very honored to be able to share my ideas and uh, hope to bring them to market. Great. Uh, So I understand you work with a firm called Lucile Environmental Services, and one of your projects is developing a fly ash possibly to to capture uh, CO2 emissions from various sources. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, We take uh, fly ash that's um, gathered by electrostatic precipitator, um, and um, as a result of the electrostatic precipitator, it has a negative charge Mm -hmm. um, because it passes through the the electrostatic uh, process and then uh, is collected in a bag house. Mm -hmm. Um, On collection... um, because of the highly negative charge, we have the ability to uh, use that carbon, which was previously thought to be inert, in making carbon skeletons and hydrocarbons. And in so doing, um, there, there is good evidence from our process that we can incorporate CO2 even from the air in the, in the process of uh, creating these uh, hydrocarbon skeletons. Okay, so I guess before we get into too much detail, uh, what exactly is fly ash? Fly ash is basically what remains after the burning of coal. And most is relatively low in carbon content, but uh, there is sufficient amount to recreate hydrocarbons uh, from the the carbon that is left behind. It's all thought to be inert, but we've proved the the contrary by by producing hydrocarbons using our method. These fly ashes, are they typically tiny carbon particles, or how would you characterize it? Oh, they're very small. Um, they're very, it's a very fine um, material. It's probably less than 100 microns in size, but I, I couldn't give you the exact size. I just don't know it. Uh-huh. Every fly ash is different depending on which facility is burning it, which boiler is burning it, how hot the boiler is, or what the carbon content of the coal or the oil is. Um, but all hydrocarbons, when burned, produce fly ash, and the fly ash is collected to prevent particulate matter from going into the air. And your process essentially allows you to recycle that fly ash into uh, usable hydrocarbons again. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. So uh, I guess this falls under, you know, a number of uh, so-called carbon capturing technologies. You know, one of the more interesting ones that's received some press lately is the idea of using sodium hydroxide to capture CO2 and convert that into, you know, harmless baking powder, um, sodium bicarbonate. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? And is there a process similar to that? Taking CO2 from the air and making baking powder? Yeah. yeah. 
do I have thoughts on it? I I, I think it's uh, admirable. I'm not sure um, what the capability is and what the amounts of material that need to be removed from the atmosphere to affect, affect CO2 level. Um, I guess there's a market for baking soda, but I'm not sure <laughs> how big it is. The question is, what do you do with it all? <laughs> right. Is your method similar to that in the sense that using, you're, you're using some sort of, what do you call it, uh, a base or some sort of material to suck up the emissions? Well, actually, we use a very powerfully uh, positively charged material. I see. And we provide hydrogen gas um, using a, uh, uh, actually use aluminum, high-purity aluminum and an acid that hydrolyzes water. And so we don't use any electrical power. There's actually no power consumption at all. And in so doing... The, it's a net positive gain in, in calories, which are then incorporated, potential energy, which is incorporated into the hydrocarbons. You know, one of the, um, I guess, holy grails in industry is trying to produce, you know, very specific length hydrocarbons from any number of sources. And these typically require either very expensive catalysts or very um, high temperatures, which are not sustainable. Um, That's correct. How yeah, is your actually... method different from these types of uh, attempts? Our method is different in that we use a, uh, this is an unusual characteristic of aluminum. Um, uh, there's a particular type of aluminum with a certain impurity that uh, it's actually silicone, which under proper conditions uh, will yield a highly positively charged liquid, which in the process of forming that liquid hydrolyzes water. We have a, a dual purpose for the aluminum acid solution. It creates hydrogen by hydrolyzing water and we have highly positively charged um, um, ions that incorporate onto the negative uh, carbon skeleton of the, the fly ash. And it's done at room temperature? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's at room temperature. There's no additional uh, energy added. And um, what we, we actually did a demonstration for a utility company, a uh, chemical engineer was present, and we got um, material that had 19,500 uh, kilocalories per per pound, which is the equivalent of high-quality fuel oil. In, you know, obtaining this aluminum substrate or material, uh, mm -hmm. does it take a lot of energy to produce that, or is, it, is the net operation, the whole life cycle, is that uh, energy positive? It's energy positive. It takes about 7,000 calories to create the aluminum uh -huh. per pound, and we're producing 19,000 uh, kilocalories. Okay, great. Uh, so it's a net, net gain, and in, in so doing, we use a material that's basically buried now or used in, in um, cementitious material for some mild benefit in energy consumption or buried in the ground. And in addition, I think we're, we're, we'll be capable of incorporating CO2 from the air at the time that we're using the reaction. Mm -hmm. So in, in fact, this is probably a lot more efficient than you know some of the so-called popular methods like getting ethanol from corn, right? Yeah, I, I think um, if you look at that process, the energy that's used to grow the corn exceeds the energy that's yielded from the ethanol. Right, I think some uh, number of studies have pointed that out. It's either almost breaking even or mm -hmm. in, in, in a lot of cases actually losing energy. Is this kind of process something that could be used in the residential commercial sectors or is this more of an industrial application? Um, I think it would be more industrial application, but the hydrocarbons we get are very high quality. They could be used for gasoline. They could be used for fuel oil. We can change the mix of the hydrocarbons to make them 
more or less um, can change the length of the hydrocarbon chains based on how we manipulate the process. I see. And this method, I mean, it sounds very new. Is it based on some sort of nanoparticle technology, or is this something that's been around for a long time? Um, actually, this friend of mine and I uh, patented the process. He had been working on it for 20 years, and this was one of his thoughts, and he and I um, perfected the technique. So it's been around, but it's not... It's not certainly not a well-known process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Well, your work sounds really exciting. Are, are there any last words you like to add about yourself or this new technology? No, no. Actually, I, I, my my biggest uh, frustration is not being able to to promulgate the technology a little faster, but understanding how business works. And I think I have to find the right partner in the right circumstances, <laughs> and be willing to to at least listen and and watch the process to know that it, it really works. Great. And you mentioned a second process that you're working on. Is it uh, related or is it completely different? It is related. It is. We, we use the same aluminum material. This would be a process using a uh, parabolic mirror to uh-huh. collect uh, solar energy. And this would be a special parabolic mirror made out of high-purity aluminum. And we would direct that concentrated light onto an aluminum solution, which would rise at to temperatures faster and... Um, would be able to store energy from the parabolic mirror at a greater rate than the typical commercial parabolic mirrors currently available. I see. And is this using some sort of photocatalytic effect? So you're powering this reaction or process using the sun's light, is that right? Correct. I see. Because what we're doing, because we use this high-purity aluminum, the positive charge in the high-purity aluminum will actually reflect the sun's rays onto the aluminum solution at a higher energy level than what the incoming light comes in at. So uh-huh. The frequency of light actually changed to a more energetic, shifts to the to the more energetic wavelength, I guess that's to the blue. And in so doing, you know, we increase the efficiency of collection of solar energy and converting it to, to a rise in temperature. And with that rise in temperature, we can heat a home or drive a turbine or whatever. Does it become a molten salt of some sort, or is it just a very hot material? The material that we're using would be an aluminum-based uh, water solution, and mm-hmm. if, it, if it's kept under pressure, we could probably get it up to a couple hundred degrees, and it would not boil. Oh, okay. We would have a secondary circuit that we could run water through, which would boil, like the primary and secondary circuits in a nuclear reactor. Okay. And how is this different from some of the um, absorption coolers, chillers they have right now that in some commercial complexes? The commercial chillers, you mean using ground uh, thermal energy from the ground? or Right, where they heat some material. I, I forgot what it is. It probably has lots of calcium in it. But Oh, I, I'm not familiar with it. This one, the material is entirely reusable. I mean, mm-hmm. it would never exhaust itself. Mm-hmm. And uh, the energy efficiency of collection would probably be 60 to 70%, where the current one is um, much, much less, probably 20%. Excellent. Well, it sounds really exciting, and uh, we certainly hope technologies like these will um, enter the market soon and uh, help decarbonize uh, the world around us. You know, I I look forward to it. If 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 anyone out there is interested, uh, they're more than welcome to contact me. I'm, I'm willing to listen to anybody's offer. Great. Dr. Feller, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you very much for having me. And you're just listening to Dr. Matthew Feller discussing progress in low-energy research. This is the Berkeley Rock Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Ms. Miriam Horn will join us to discuss Earth the Sequel. So stay tuned.
back to the Brick Grok Science Show. Well, the forecasts for global warming are growing more and more urgent, but possible solutions to these problems may be aided by an entrepreneurial approach to the problem. Well, how can the market forces of capitalism be used to spur technological innovations in this arena? Join us today to discuss this issue is Ms. Miriam Horn. Ms. Horn is a journalist for U.S. News & World Reports, who, along with Fred Krupp, president of the Environmental Defense Fund, has penned the new book, Earth the Sequel, which describes the race to reinvent energy and stop global warming. Ms. Horn, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. My pleasure. Well, it's certainly our pleasure, and I think this is certainly a very fascinating book, especially for all concerned about the environment. It's a really interesting title for the book, Earth the Sequel. What was the prequel? Well, the prequel is really what we're living through right now, which is a kind of scary episode in the history of the Earth. And we know people are watching the melting of the ice caps and the disappearance of the glaciers and the changes in species behavior and the extinctions. And there's sort of grim news every single day. And so we wanted to help people think about what's next. And and we see a big choice to be made here. And one choice will take us to what we think will be a much healthier planet and a planet with enough energy for everyone on the planet and sort of a new era of wealth and abundance. So what are the choices? Well, the choice really rests with the U.S. leadership. Right now, the world is waiting for the U.S. to take significant national action. And Europe has gotten busy, but Europe, in the scheme of things, doesn't carry the weight that the U.S. does. And so really what needs to happen is the U.S. Congress needs to pass law that sets a firm cap on how much carbon can be dumped into the atmosphere. And they also need, with that firm cap, which would be ratcheted down over time so that we get the 80% reductions in emissions that we need to get in order to secure the planet against the worst calamities. In addition to that, we would like to see Congress create a trading mechanism which allows people who find great ways to reduce pollution to actually sell those pollution reductions. So pollution reduction becomes a new kind of commodity. If you get below your allotted amount of pollution, you can sell your extra, and that kicks in this great profit motive, which has been the engine for so much innovation in history. How much uh, political will is there right now in Capitol Hill to do that? You know, it has changed so quickly and so gratifyingly in the last couple of years. This presidential race is really pushing things in the right direction because we're now down to candidates whom are strong advocates of exactly the kind of cap-and-trade law that we have been advocating for many years. John McCain has been a leader on that for at least five or six years, was the first real leader on Capitol Hill. And Congress is really getting much busier and in a much more substantive way as well, in part because there are a lot of congressmen that are recognizing that this is an opportunity. It's not just a crisis, but that there is enormous economic opportunity here. And the venture capitalists who made their fortunes in the information technology revolution are switching huge amounts of money over into these green technologies because they recognize that energy is the biggest business in the world. John Doerr, who funded Google initially, calls it the mother of all markets. It's worth $6 trillion. So if you score in that market, you stand to make an enormous fortune. And there's lots of job opportunities. So Congress is now recognizing that there's both an urgent crisis that has to be addressed, but also that addressing it is not just going to impoverish us and condemn us to shivering in the dark. It's really going to open up this whole new industrial revolution. So really, it's not just an environmental motive, but really an economic one as well. 
Well, we feel like the, the scale of a problem like this, and it's always been the Environmental Defense Fund strategy to try to get the economic incentives pulling in the right direction so that you're not just in the position of trying to stop things. You're not just oppositional. You're also trying to build constructive solutions that meet the real needs that people have and communities have. And so, but we've also recognized that problems of this scale, a bunch of environmentalists can't solve this problem. It's too big. The only way you can really solve it is to mobilize everything we've got, every brilliant inventor, every deep-pocketed investor, every profit-grubbing, <laughs> greedy entrepreneur. We have to get everything pulling in the right direction here if we're going to really tackle this enormous problem. Well, certainly in researching your book, you encountered a number of these different types of people. What were some of the more fascinating ones? Well, the range was really amazing. The first place I went was a place called Amaris in Emeryville, California, and it was founded by these three guys that met as postdocs at Berkeley. One of them had dropped out of school, including high school. He dropped out of school several times, and one of his partners had paid his way through MIT playing blackjack in the casinos famous MIT blackjack team, mm. and they had figured out a way, when they were postdocs, they had figured out a way to re-engineer yeast so that you could give them sugar and you could get really any kind of carbon molecule you wanted out at the end. So instead of getting your sugar to produce alcohol and make beer or ethanol to use as fuel, and it, which is not a very good fuel, it's not very energy dense and it mixes with water, instead they re-engineered their yeast to make hydrocarbons that you can't really distinguish from the gasoline or diesel fuel or jet fuel that we make from petroleum right now. So that promises to have biofuels go immediately into the existing infrastructure. And they were sort of your classic startup. They had the foosball table and the music playing and it, the whole place smelled like a brewery and they all looked really young and played ultimate frisbee after work and and then there were people and all had phds and then there were people like bernie carl in alaska who's this nutty guy who's been in the recycling business he's kind of been a junk man for 25 years who figured out how to use his hot springs resource first to refrigerate an ice hotel to attract tourists to his resort and then to make electricity, which defied all expectations because his hot water is not very hot. And all the experts said it wasn't hot enough, and he proved them wrong. And now there's this little low-temperature geothermal power plant called the China Power Plant that United Technologies is commercializing globally, thanks to this nutty guy up in Alaska. Well, it certainly sounds like a range of people there. So what about the capitalists that are involved? Well, I mentioned John Doerr, who is probably Silicon Valley's most famous venture capitalist. He was right there at the beginnings of Amazon and Google and his plays still the role of kind of the oracle of Silicon Valley. And he hooked into this stuff a few years ago. There's also Vinod Kosla, whose name crops up frequently in association with this stuff. Kleiner Perkins, where John Doerr is a partner, and Bill Joy, a lot of the legends of the information revolution are there, and they have shifted now close to half of their resources, both their financial resources and their partners, over to clean tech. And they're working, you know, the book kind of looks across this whole spectrum of innovation, which includes solar cells and solar thermal technology, where you use the sun's heat and biofuels, as we mentioned, and wave energy and geothermal energy and ways to clean up coal and Kleiner Perkins and a lot of the Silicon Valley investors are now getting deep into all of those different technologies. The, it's 
speeding up at a rate that it's becoming almost impossible to keep up with. Companies are multiplying daily, and, and that's going on all over the world. You're seeing a lot of activity in Europe and a lot of activity in Asia as well. Yeah, that is an interesting issue. Are some countries a little ahead of the curve on this issue? Well, Europe definitely got a head start because they did move politically first. They ratified the Kyoto Treaty and they started their own European cap-and-trade system several years ago in order to learn how to do it, and they made a lot of mistakes, but they've worked out a lot of the kinks now, and they have a really thriving carbon market functioning now. They've gotten the allocations more in line with the emissions, and it's starting to be a big commodity market, and you're seeing countries like Spain get way out ahead on solar thermal technology, which is this technology where you put arrays of mirrors out in the desert and use the sun's heat to boil either water or oil and use that to make steam to drive a turbine. Spain has gotten well out ahead on that. Scotland and Wales and Portugal are all way out ahead on wave energy. So there's definitely a sequence of events. Once you get take the political action and you get this cap in place and you get the profit motive functioning, you start to see this innovation really take off. China so far has been in the role of low-cost manufacturer on this, and it's really, when I talk about the rest of the world waiting for the U.S. to take the lead, I really mean politically. I, people often say, well, why should we do anything if China and India aren't, because they're China's now neck and neck with the U.S. for biggest emitter in the world. And our feeling is that China has always followed the industrialized nation's lead on emissions, on pollution reductions, and that that will be true here as well. And so we can't really expect China to take a cap until the U.S. does. It's interesting that a lot of the regions developing uh, alternative energies that are best suited for uh, that particular region, for example, solar in the desert southwest and wave along the coast, do you see this as being more of a distributed network of energy sources? I think it will be, and I think that's a real strength of it because it solves a lot of the greatest concerns around energy today, that some of the security issues around energy, it gives us huge domestic resources when you start talking about renewable resources, and having energy production distributed really enhances that security. That said, I think that you will see still some big power plants, only they'll be powered by the sun. I think the sun in particular stands to take a big bite out of this. In a place like California, that's heavily populated, you probably will see more rooftop type systems and people making a lot of their electricity at home. But my guess is that the Midwest and the Northeast will be supplied with power from the desert Southwest. You can put a square in Nevada of these solar thermal power plants, 100 miles on a side, could power the entire United States. So I think you'll see some big, there's already starting to be some power plants built in the Southwest. In that case, you really do need to get a renewable energy grid. You need transmission lines that are developed specifically to carry this energy from the middle of nowhere to the demand centers. And we're starting to see some really interesting partnerships between wildlife conservationists and and people who have been really concerned about protecting these wild lands who are now coming together with energy producers because they recognize that none of these ecosystems are going to survive if we don't get global warming under control. And so they're where they've in the past wanted to block new transmission lines. They're now trying to facilitate transmission lines that are designed expressly for renewable energy.
Well, this is certainly very interesting, maybe even a little bit different message than one typically hears from the whole global warming debate, that there's really hope of turning this all around. Is that what you've been finding in talking about the book? Absolutely. It was a fantastic couple years working on this book because I, starting with Amaris and then traveling around, seeing people down in Silicon Valley working on solar inks that can be printed on, like you would print a billboard, they dissolve nanoscale particles of unpurified silicon, very cheap silicon that doesn't come out of this microchip supply chain. You don't have to fight over the supply. And they dissolve these nanoparticles in ink, and then you can print acres and acres of material that turns sunlight to electricity. And I would walk into these places and just feel like I had met the most brilliant people I'd ever met in my life who were completely committed to solving this problem, who had tens of millions and in some cases hundreds of millions of dollars behind them and I, I was walking on clouds which is a pretty odd thing to be doing if you're an environmental advocate you that i it, i was just buzzing with excitement and felt increasingly hopeful with each passing week and have been really gratified that people who have been reading the book have been that's the first thing that people always say to us is that this has given them so much hope hope that they were really in need of and we've seen that when people get too frightened and too filled with despair it's just the effect is paralyzing it doesn't allow you to take action and there really is something that we can do here indeed indeed well i'm curious if you have a final word regarding the hope of renewable energies and uh, changing the turn of global warming we hope that your listeners will find a way to participate in this probably the most important way to participate is as a citizen making sure that the next u.s congress and the next u.s president really take this in hand and get in place the rules my co-author fred calls it the starting pistol in the greatest race of our time but once the rules are clear and there's profits to be made in this the transformation is we think it's going to dwarf anything that we've seen in the last 30 years that the world will be really changed for the better all across the world that new opportunity will be created for human beings and so people can participate as citizens they can participate as inventors investors and um, we have a website on the book earththesequel.com we also have our organizational website environmentaldefensefund.org but earththesequel.com will link them into into our own website and into, into a lot of resources there's also a really cool trailer video trailer that of the book where you can see what some of these people look like and see them talking about their technologies well it's great i certainly hope people will go take a look at that again the new book is earth the sequel and thank you very much, Ms. Warren, for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. If you do have a few minutes, we would like to play the Grokatron 5000. Okay. Okay. Here we go. It is, of course, our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, Toxic to the Environment or a Renewable Resource. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if they're toxic to the environment or a renewable resource. Uh, Ms. Horney, ready to play the game? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> Person number one, toxic to the environment or renewable resource, Jerry Springer. Jerry Springer, wow. I can't say I've watched a lot of Jerry Springer. <laughs> um, uh, he certainly seems to have endless energy, so I guess he'd have to be both. Can I say both? <laughs> <laughs> uh, sure. I guess. How about number two is the Fed Chairman, Ben Bernanke. Oh, dear. These are hard. Um, well, I'm going to, since hope is the theme of my book, I'm going to be hopeful that Ben Bernanke is going to lead us out of the desert here. So I'm going to say he's a renewable resource. <laughs> okay, very good. Uh, well, number three should be uh, relatively easy. It's Mr. Conservation himself, Al Gore. Al Gore is definitely a renewable resource. 
we felt like we could start our book with the solution because Al Gore had done all the work of enlightening people about the problem. I think he's certainly done that. Um, number four, though, the heiress Paris Hilton. Oh, dear. All right, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say toxic to the environment. <laughs> I have a nine-year-old daughter. <laughs> oh, that's really going out on a limb for that one. <laughs> yes. Okay, and finally, number five, it's the President of the United States, George Bush. Well, as I mentioned earlier, we are a completely bipartisan organization that reaches across the aisle. And I will give George Bush credit for an environmental initiative he just signed, which was a 70% cut in sulfur dioxide pollution, which is the acid rain pollution. And the reason he was able to do it was because this cap-and-trade mechanism that we talk about was used for acid rain, and it made it so cheap and so easy to cut acid rain pollution that it's not even controversial anymore. So at least on one front, he's been a renewable resource. Encouraging, at least. Ms. Horn, I do want to thank you very much for joining us today, talking about the book Earth, the Sequel, and, of course, uh, all the fascinating developments in uh, renewable energies. Well, it has been my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye. All right, and that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Bling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon, and stay tuned for more music.